Hello and welcome to Episode 5 of the Business Divorce Roundtable. I'm Peter Mahler, business divorce lawyer, partner at Farrell Fritz in New York City. I'm calling this episode Business Divorce Delaware Style, in which you'll hear my interview of Delaware lawyers Kurt Heyman and Pete Laddick, two of the best-known and accomplished Delaware lawyers when it comes to business divorce and other corporate litigation in the Delaware Court of Chancery. You've all probably heard of the Delaware franchise. The tiny state of Delaware with its tiny population nonetheless has made itself the preferred state of incorporation for most publicly owned companies and for many, many thousands closely held business entities, including limited partnerships, corporations, and especially in recent years, limited liability companies. Most lawyers will tell you it's because of the pro-management enabling statutes for these business entities, which are under constant review and revision by the Delaware legislature with the help of a very active bar. As a result, the Delaware Chancery Court has developed a well-deserved reputation as the country's leading court for business law, and its decisions have had an outsized influence on business litigation in New York and many other states. Kurt and Pete have had extensive experience with business divorce cases in the Chancery Court. Kurt is a founding partner of Proctor, Heyman & Nario in Wilmington, Delaware, where he focuses his practice on corporate governance, partnership, and limited liability company disputes in the Delaware Court of Chancery. Pete Laddig is the vice chair of the Corporate and Commercial Litigation Group at Morris James, also in Wilmington, Delaware, where he concentrates his practice in the areas of corporate governance and commercial litigation. In my interview of Kurt and Pete, they'll discuss what it's like to litigate business divorce cases in Delaware Chancery Court, which can be very different from at least my experience litigating in the New York State Courts, and also talk about some of the current trends and important cases in the business divorce area in the Chancery Court. So without further ado, let's get started. Kurt Heyman, Pete Laddig, welcome to the Business Divorce Roundtable. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. I, I think I have to liken us to the uh, the three tenors. What do you think? The three business divorce lawyers? You don't think three stooges would be more apt? Uh, I'm, I'm clearly curly, right, Kurt? <laughs> uh, yeah, I was, I was thinking three stooges would be more apt. Uh, but, but that's well, I, I thought you were going to go for Pavar- the Pavarotti role, but I guess not. <laughs> anyway, I, I'm really happy and excited to be talking to two premier litigators. I don't have to say business divorce litigators, although that's what you are as well, but I know the two of you as two, you know, go-to litigators in in the Delaware Chancery Court, which from my perch here in New York has so many things that are different about it than what we do here in, in the New York judicial system. And I hope we'll talk a little bit about that in the context of business divorce litigation. Let me just start off with a comment, and then I'll let you jump in. Here in New York, we have many Delaware-based, uh, New York-based Delaware uh, corporations and now LLCs. Sometimes they land in court involving disputes among co-owners of those businesses, but not when it comes to business divorce, because for the most part in here in New York, we don't allow the litigation in New York of dissolution cases involving out-of-state entities. In Delaware, you're on the flip side of that, where you have Delaware entities that are based outside of Delaware that end up litigating these types of disputes in Chancery Court in Delaware. Is that right? Peter, you want to start? Sure. Uh, yeah, no, that's that's absolutely correct, Peter. We tend to get mostly out-of-state entities that are formed under Delaware laws. I, I, I think I may have had one or two, really, in my career, Delaware companies that operate within the state of Delaware that come across my desk. But if you, you're correct, that for the most part, it's some folks operating elsewhere, but they've formed under Delaware law. But what about yeah. all those mom-and-pop businesses in Delaware? Don't you get those too? Well, we, we do. This is Kurt. I mean, I like to say everybody's incorporated in Delaware, but nobody's actually here. We're, we're a corporate state. We're the place where people choose to incorporate, but the population of Delaware is so tiny as compared to New York that there is so much less actual commercial uh, activity going on. New York is a big commercial state. So, yes, we do get the small mom and pops here in Delaware at times, but I, I think Peter's and my 
firms uh, may be of the type that uh, uh, it may be a little too expensive for some of those. So it, it tends more to be the people who are incorporated here, but based elsewhere. You know, I follow the decisions that come out of the Delaware Chancery Court pretty closely. My impression over the years reading those decisions that deal with business divorce cases is that very rarely do I see a case involving what I would consider to be a, you know, small or, you know, lightly capitalized company. Uh, My impression is always that we're talking about highly capitalized businesses, more and more LLCs, of course. So you get the impression that all of the business divorce litigation that I see in in the Chancery Court involves companies in the, I'll just pick some random numbers, you know, 50 million to 100 million and higher range. Is that a false false impression? The fact is that we actually do get some cases that are smaller, uh, at least compared to the numbers that you uh, were talking about. I had a a case a few years ago that was, uh, you know, at the time it came in, I think they were talking around maybe a $9 million value for the company. It ended up actually selling for more at the end of the day. But I think anecdotally, and maybe maybe Kurt has a, a different or the same experience as I, but anecdotally, uh, when we get those smaller cases, usually there is some you know early on or interim skirmish that brings us before the court, and the court often tells us, "Hey, what are you guys doing here? You guys are going to spend more money uh, than this case than this company is really worth just litigating all this stuff. Why don't you why don't you figure out a way to resolve this?" amicably, because I don't think that anybody's going to really like the result at the end of the day. So the answer, you know, that's a long way of saying we do get some of the some of the smaller cases, but those tend to resolve, whether it's because the court told us to or because at some point cooler heads prevail. I think that's right. Uh, I, I think that uh, you know, obviously, and in, in, in people are listening to your business divorce blog, they know we're, we're talking about privately held companies. The difference, of course, between privately held companies and public companies is that we're not talking about other people's money. We're talking about the money of the actual owners and, and founders and, and, and people running the business. Now, you can have still very substantial businesses, uh, you know, whether it's you know, TransPerfect or, or some of the other uh, cases that have gone through the Court of Chancery. But when you get what you might call the more mom-and-pop situation, uh, you are talking about a lot less money, and I've taken to trial uh, uh, a case involving a company that had about $3 million in annual revenues. I've also had, uh, just ironically, uh, in my few local cases, some local uh, litigation support companies where I've represented one side or the other. Again, we'd be talking about a few million dollars uh, in, in, in revenue. Th- those cases, uh, cooler heads did prevail, and there were settlements, as was strongly encouraged by the court, as, uh, as Peter said. Mm-hmm. I mean, here in New York, I'd say the, the prototypical business divorce case is a single asset, you know, real estate holding company with an asset worth 5 to $10 million, and maybe half of those are family-owned companies. That doesn't sound like what I see for the most part in Delaware. What, what would be the prototypical Delaware business divorce case, or is, maybe there is none? I'm not sure I'd say there's a prototypical case, except that if it actually gets uh, reported and you go through a, you know, a full trial on the merits in the Delaware Court of Chancery, you're probably talking about something fairly substantial. Uh, you know, Like I said, I, I have at a case as small as you know three million in annual revenues, but you know whether you're talking about the cases that people hear about and know about, you know whether it was uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer that uh, uh, Pete Laddick litigated that was probably worth I don't know about a hundred million dollars, and or uh, uh, a kids clothing company where I took a matter to trial that you know again might have been worth tens of millions of dollars. Uh, th- those are the ones that go to trial and get the decisions on average. So that may be why you're seeing it that way. What's the mix of business divorce cases as between the different you know, entity forms that uh, we all have here in New York, as well as, of course, in Delaware? That's a, you know, that's a good question. I, I, I think 
again, it's going only going to be anecdotal, but I think you're seeing a lot more LLC dissolution cases than uh, corporation uh, dissolution cases, and in a large part because of the differing remedies available under the statutes uh, and you know as a matter of equity. As you may know, the, in Delaware, the, you have a very limited ability to, to dissolve an operating entity, uh, operating corporation, excuse me. The clearest way is if you have a, two, a 50-50 company. And if you don't have that, then you have to get into this and some of the stuff we're going to talk about in a little bit, where there has to be a, a deadlock, either amongst the stockholders of the board or whatnot. And that you know, is much more difficult to, to prove, whereas the LLC statute is a little more flexibility in that it has the general, no longer reasonably practicable to uh, carry on the business of the, of the entity standard, I, which I, is... I'm sorry. Yeah, I think there's another. I think you're right, Peter. I think that part of it is that it may actually be easier, although perhaps we're seeing merging of that over time uh, you know, in the LLC context. But I think it's also just a matter of, of a sign of the times. I think if the entity has been around for a while, it's more likely to be an S corporation. Whereas if uh, it was formed within the last 10 years, it's more likely to be an LLC. That just right. has to do with what people are actually forming now for you know, pass-through tax uh, purposes. I really hear of very few people forming S-corporations these days. For uh, you know, they're, It's almost all LLCs, and I, I don't have the exact numbers on hand, but a few years ago, LLC formation outstripped corporation formation in Delaware for the first time. Uh, I think it's only increasing. Yeah, I've so, seen some uh, statistics from which are now dated uh, indicating that the rate was something at, um, I think, 90% or more of new codes were being formed in Delaware <laughs> as LLCs. Uh, it, it may be that high. I, I, don't, I don't recall. Uh, and so I think that it's just that's what's getting formed. But, you know, uh, the cases where I've gone to trial where it's been uh, an entity that was formed, say, in the 90s, those have been uh, S-corporations. Relatively speaking, New York has been behind the curve in the growth of and popularity of LLCs here in New York as compared to Delaware and most other states. And at this point, LLC business divorce litigation is predominating over other entity uh, forms. It's taken a while. It, and it's funny, actually, I think it was Pete who I thought you started to comment that, relatively speaking, it's easier to get dissolution of an LLC than a corporation in Delaware. Did I hear you right? Yeah, I think it, it, relatively speaking, yes. From which, a which, which, is, which is the opposite of, of New York. I've always preached that if I had a choice, all other things being equal, of being a minority shareholder of a corporation versus minority member of an LLC here in New York, I'll take the corporation every time. Because, because of the, you know, we have dissolution statutes, you have to be 20%, but, you know, if you're a 20% shareholder of a New York closed corporation, you have the ability to ask for dissolution. So it's actually easier. For right. And then, you know, if you, you also have a, a statute where you can basically get bought out as well. Let's, let's talk about what it's like to litigate a business divorce case in the Delaware Chancery Court. My perspective of litigating in the New York courts, and, and I've hung around with enough of you <laughs> Wilmington types to know that it's a bit different where you practice. You have a smaller court, a fewer number of judges who are in the Chancery Court. The way they handle cases is so different. I call it the, and many others call it the rocket docket. You folks don't have interlocutory appeals where every time a judge coughs in New York, you can appeal it. How would you describe what it's like to litigate a business force case in the Chancery Court? And, and, and does it help? Does it hinder? Uh, it's all sweetness and light, uh, Peter. Uh, business divorce cases, yes. everybody always gets along, and the judge is always happy to see us. We're always happy to see each other. No, it, it, you know, it, it is, a, uh, I think, a very different place to litigate than New York, and I've, I've been in uh, your, your Supreme Court a number of times, and I still can't get over the fact that it's the lowest court, but we'll put that aside. It is a small court. There are five members of the Court of Chancery. We have a very small bar. Here. I can't remember if there are fewer than 4,000 or 5,000 practicing members 
of the bar. Uh, I think it's fewer than four. Yeah. And then when you get to subsections of the bar, it gets even smaller. Uh, everybody, if you regularly practice in an area, is a repeat player. Everybody on the other side from you, not the clients necessarily, but the attorneys, uh, the judges are all repeat players. You know, if I have 90% of my, my caseload is before the court of chancery with, which has five members. I mean, you do the math. I'm, uh, in front of pretty much all of them at any given time. You know, I'll see, for example, Peter either on the other side or the same side in cases, particularly since we both practice corporate litigation generally and uh, business divorce in particular, you know, fairly often. So it, uh, I think, strongly encourages people to be uh, fairly straightforward with each other, be fairly civil, because there will be the next time around. Uh, so I'd say that that's one aspect of it that may be different from New York, although I don't know that it's unique to uh, business divorce cases. You've mentioned deadlock uh, a few times, <laughs> and we have a, for corporations here in New York, we have a deadlock dissolution statute, and then we have an oppression, minority shareholder oppression statute. For corporation, Delaware corporations, you have, you do have a deadlock statute, but you don't have minority shareholder oppression, correct? That's right. So you yeah. have you have the the Delaware deadlock statute for closely held corporations. Does it have a provision for buyout, or is the buyout remedy something that is in the judge's sort of common law arsenal? You want to take that one first, Peter? Yeah, yeah. I'll start off and say it is not in the statute, nor is it really in the the arsenal of the uh, member of the court to impose. It, it's an it's a rarity, I think, if it's ever been done. I don't even know if it's been done, but it's it's not around in Delaware. Well, what do you, what do you mean by that exactly, Peter? I, I guess the the buyout is, uh, as Mr. Mahler is, uh, there are two Peters on the line, so I'm trying to distinguish between Yeah, there's no forced buyout remedy, but that's, it, that's it has, the, I'm going to, the uh, judge makes a well, but it has become the 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 case that dissolution means sale of the company. That the court isn't usually ordering that you know a piecemeal dissolution of the company, you know, stopping its business, etc. It's usually sold as a going concern, and the question becomes who gets to bid on it and how. So often there is a buyout of one by the other. Now, admittedly, usually that's more likely in the 50-50 case uh, rather than when you have a minority. But, I mean, dissolution is coming to mean uh, a sale or a buyout of some kind. I just also toss in, Peter, that although there is no deadlock statute for LLCs, the case law has essentially adopted something similar to the corporate standard under the deadlock statute. Moving on to LLCs, which more and more are dominating the business divorce arena. Delaware, very famous for its contractarian approach to LLCs and freedom of contract. Peter, Peter, I I think that that's consistent with uh, uh, Peter Laddig's comment about the court wanting to treat people like they're adults, that uh, generally speaking, the court is going to hold you to your agreement. That's, that's the contractarian approach. I think that approach has more application in certain settings than others, sometimes based on the relative sophistication of the business owners that are involved, some of whom, in my experience, have no clue what kind of entity their accountant or lawyer is setting up for them. They wouldn't know the difference between an LLC versus a partnership versus a close corporation if you ask them at the time that they were signing whatever agreement they were signing well but I but I, I think that that distinction oh, that, is, yeah that's right I think that 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 distinction is 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 sort of falling by the wayside insofar as even if you form an S corporation you can put uh, you know all kinds of provisions in the certificate of incorporation if you really want to protect yourself in a way. And you can also have shareholders agreements. You know, business divorce cases often get litigated uh, over 
what a shareholders agreement says or whether there was a shareholders agreement was it in writing was it signed was it verbal uh, is it enforceable etc and so I, I mean in some ways I, I think the distinctions between the entities are blurring yeah I think that yeah I would say I would I would agree with that too it's they're blurring and it's also at least from the LLC standpoint if the court looks uh, and finds that there is some reason why he might consider he or she might consider dissolving the entity what they're first going to do is look to see whether there's actually an agreement within the LLC provisions that allows you to get out if there isn't a, a provision an exit provision in the agreement that the court believes is equitable then it's going to um, more strongly consider dissolution and, and you can actually waive the right to seek judicial dissolution in Delaware, although Carlisle held that that doesn't apply to equitable dissolution, which I assume you'll get to at some point. Yeah, and speaking of equitable, I mean, if, if I look at over the, over the course of the last 10 years, certainly looking at New York and comparing to what I see going on in Delaware, it was always my impression that it took a long time for the New York courts to stop treating LLCs in the context of business divorces like they were close corporations which come with an expectancy of enforcement of fiduciary obligations all around and liberal use of the court's equitable powers to address issues of fairness. And of course, once you start talking about equity and fairness, you get into sort of an area of indeterminacy, getting away from the, the notion of contract. It seemed to me that Delaware was much more toward the other side of that spectrum, much more ready to enforce contractual expectations at the at the expense, if you can use that expression, of notions of fairness and, and equity. New York over the years, I think, has moved in the direction of the Delaware contractarian notion. I was on a recent... Uh, panel discussion with you, Kurt, in Montreal at the ABA meeting where one of the themes or questions being asked was whether equity was playing a was beginning to play a larger role in LLC jurisprudence in Delaware. Reaction? Well, I, I, I think the answer is yes, but I think that there's an explanation for it um, that isn't just you know, judicial activism. The reason is that there was an amendment to the LLC Act which expressly said that the law of equity will apply to LLC agreements. Uh, I, I think the court said, well, if we're going to now incorporate the entire law of equity, then we have room for things like equitable dissolution. And the, the case in question, the Carlisle case, there was an issue of whether one of the members had standing because they had transferred the membership interest to an affiliate. And the court held, well, because you assigned the interest, the assignee is not a member within the meaning of the statute who can seek dissolution, judicial dissolution, but we now have the law of equity applying, and I find that the uh, it would be equitable to permit uh, this assignee to seek dissolution under the specific circumstances here. So you, you do have greater room for equity, but it's because of a judicial, a legislative amendment as opposed to the court saying we just want to be more equitable. Well, Peter, uh, since, you, since, since you are not a partisan in the Carlisle case, let me ask you the question. Is it really equitable dissolution? I mean, when I hear equitable dissolution, I'm thinking in terms of grounds for dissolution. Maybe it's not really grounds for dissolution. Maybe it's just equitable standing to seek dissolution. What's your view? Yeah, well, I think it, it goes really, it's, it's born of two things. Uh, one, uh, I think I, it probably is equitable standing because the, the way the statute is constructed, it requires uh, that if you want to seek judicial dissolution, you have to be a member. And in the Carlisle case, the court found, well, you're not a member because interest was transferred and therefore you're not a member. And, and because it wasn't done 
in compliance with the transfer provisions of the LLC agreement, nor is the transferee. So nobody's a member. And I think, you know, in addition to, to Kurt's comment saying that the amendment to the statute allows the court to consider the law of equity now, uh, there is also this growing notion that courts are now more willing, I think, to to interfere, or perhaps that's a bad choice of words, but to get involved and separate business relationships in in Delaware than they had been previously. I think Carlisle, for instance, is a is a is a good example where you can look at it from the legal standpoint and say, "Well, too bad you guys aren't members anymore, and so therefore you you can't get out of this." But you know, from a practical standpoint. Does it make sense from an economic, uh, an economic theory to basically have a, you know, locked in, uh, membership interest that you can do absolutely nothing about and to keep these people together for uh, until who knows when, uh, and force them to continue to have a relationship? The courts, I think courts are more willing, in my opinion, just from anecdotal evidence. To say, you know what, I'm going to separate you guys because that's what really needs to be done. Yeah, I, I would, I would agree with all of that, and I think this was sort of the theme of our panel in Montreal, Peter. Uh, that I think Delaware is coming to uh, a place of having almost no fault divorce, at the very least, in the fifty-fifty situation. You know, you could argue that we're not there yet, where there's a, a minority interest, but where you have a fifty-fifty situation. Most of them are dissolved under the deadlock rubric, uh, which, of course, is not even in the LLC statute, but has been borrowed from corporate law. But then they're, they're even finding deadlock pretty easily. I, I, I mean, there, there are cases yeah. saying that you have a deadlock when you disagree about whether to dissolve, you know, which is, you, know, you could say, a little circular. But on the other hand, uh, as, as uh, Peter Laddick says, you know, from an economic theory standpoint, do you want two 50-50 uh, stockholders or, or, or members you know, stuck together in a uh, relationship that at least one of them no longer wants? And so I, I think it is getting easier. But uh, you know, if you have a, a minority case, you more have to justify dissolution based upon a frustrated purpose, I think, rather than on deadlock. And I think the court is also taking a somewhat more expansive view of of when you can show a frustrated purpose, and, and that would be in the uh, the Meyer case. Although I, I I can't recall that it actually cited you know the statutory amendment uh, about the law of equity, but it, it did not limit itself to the four corners of the LLC agreement itself in determining what the purpose was of the agreement because there had been a contemporaneously executed license agreement that the court found was part of the overall deal between the parties and that they were establishing essentially a joint venture whose purpose became frustrated when the license agreement was terminated. Sort of using equitable principles there because there was an integration clause and you know uh, one side was saying, well, you don't consider the license agreement. But the court said, no, overall, I view this together as a joint venture for the purpose of furthering the business under the license agreement. And now with that license agreement gone, that purpose is frustrated. You've mentioned two cases, TransPerfect and the Philly Inquirer. And when I think of those cases, of course, I think of the remedies that were ultimately imposed either to some extent voluntarily, to some extent involuntarily. The Philly Inquirer case is done and over. Pete, you were, I believe, lead counsel for one of the sides in that case. The TransPerfect case is still pending. And both of you, Kurt and Pete, have had some involvement, I don't believe, as lead counsel in that case. And I think, I think Pete, uh, this is a case that you're not really able to talk about. And we're not going to go into any detail here. The, the TransPerfect case is one that anyone's interested, they can go onto my blog and get all the details. But I really want to talk about the remedies in those cases, the sale of the company remedies in those cases, and, and what does that represent in terms of any trends or not 
in the way the, the Chancery Court is, is looking at how to resolve these cases. Let's start with the, uh, the Philly Inquirer case, which, uh, and, and, and Pete, could you just, before we talk about the sale of the company in that case, it has a fascinating backstory in terms of where that case ended up being litigated. Can you share that with us? Yeah, sure. So this was not the first dispute that the parties had had. They had, they had, they had, had a skirmish in the fall relating to the firing of the editor of the newspaper. That got filed in, in the Philadelphia Commerce Court. We actually filed an action down here as well, but decided to go through in the Commerce Court. And so after that skirmish, the parties had been talking about getting a resolution because if you wanted to, there was a deadlock here, but it was not a true 50-50. The deadlock was based on the fact that each of the two parties, there was essentially the Norcross side, George Norcross and Lewis Katz on the other side, each of them had to agree to all major decisions. So even though they not, neither had a majority or even 50% of the economic interest in the company, the way they had structured their arrangement said that both of them had to agree on major decisions. And they were, not surprisingly, no longer able to get along at one point, which led to all these disputes. But they're working on a pro- working on a re- resolution, trying to get there. And then I want to say it was maybe like January 1st or December 31st is when the CATS group filed up in the Philadelphia Commerce Court. The Norcross group filed in the Court of Chancery. And so the first month and a half or so of the case was spent fighting over or which court would decide the manner in which the entity would be dissolved because the parties agreed we can't get along anymore and there's no other way to fix this other than to dissolve the company. You had dueling dissolution petitions in the Philadelphia court and in the Chancery court in Wilmington. And in the end of the Chancery court. So right. how, did, how did that And ultimately out? what happened is uh, Judge McInerney... Yeah, Judge McInerney decided that uh, she, I think she, it was, she would exercise her discretion not to hear the dissolution case and that in favor of it being heard by the Court of Chancery. Uh, There were a lot of arguments on that issue. One of the more compelling ones, at least at that time, was, was that, look, everybody agrees this needs to be done. It needs to be done one time. Why would you go forward in Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania, where there is a question about the jurisdiction of a Pennsylvania court to dissolve a Delaware-formed entity when you can just let it go forward in Delaware and there's no reason why the Delaware court's going to get it wrong. So it ended up going forward in, in, in Delaware with the sole issue being how will this entity be dissolved? Well, the, the jurisdictional issue is one that has fascinated me for decades because here in New York, it was only in the last year that the appellate courts came into alignment and agreed that right. a New York court will not, cannot, does not have jurisdiction to dissolve an out-of-state entity. So I, I, I was really fascinated in how that uh, was resolved in the Philly Inquirer case. Peter, I don't, I don't think any Delaware court, though, has ever said that a New York court cannot do that, uh, unless you are aware of a case. No, a Delaware court's not, never said that a, a court of another state can't do this. If you want an extended uh, discussion of this, you can always view my article in the business lawyer. <laughs> it's a very specific topic. No, no, I, w- I was hoping you'd mention that. Give us, give us a little more detail so people can... Yeah, so, yeah, it's called... Are the court, judicial dissolution are the courts of the state that brought you in the same ones that have to take you out or something like that. Okay. And uh, the, the gist of it is that we make the argument that judicial dissolution is a unique animal. It's not like a claim or a statutory claim like you might have elsewhere or, or in any other kind of you know case. It is really severing the relationship between the members or the stockholders of the entity and the state itself, and that a you know a court, a Delaware court, should no more tell Pennsylvania that it no longer has a relationship with the people that formed a, a an entity under Pennsylvania's laws, than a Pennsylvania court should should do the same thing for a, for folks who formed an entity under Delaware's laws. All right. So everyone's going to go out now and read uh, your article. Let's move on to. <laughs> 
what happened with the sale of the company in the Philly Inquirer case, and then well, Kurt will will talk about TransPerfect. The company was sold. How did it come about? And and what were what were the competing versions of how the sale should happen? Sure. So um, the Norcross side wanted to have a sale of the company just amongst the existing members. English outcry ascending auction, meaning I bid $5 and then, you know, I bid 10 and then it would go up like that. The cats side wanted it to be sold in a public auction so that anyone could participate, but with a single sealed bid. So there would be one round of bidding. Everybody would submit a single bid. And at the end, you'd open them all up and the highest one wins. The cat side got Professor Subramanian from Harvard and another professor to talk about auction theory. We got some folks who were actually, who had marketed and sold media companies previously. That was part of the analysis too. But the, you know, one of the other things was that the company was actually in some dire straits. The, the dispute amongst the parties had made it very difficult for them to retain qualified personnel to hire new qualified personnel for to replace the folks who were leaving the norcross side had argued that the company simply could not withstand the length of time it would take in order to do a public auction and ultimately the 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 court decided to have the open outcry ascending auction just amongst the members of the llc as well Initially, as well as the the guild, which represented the uh, staff of the Inquirer, uh, the guild eventually dropped out. That so that was what the court's ruling was just just amongst the members, and it ended up being sold for I want to say eighty five, eighty six million somewhere in there. So the if I understand the the Norcross side got the form of auction that they wanted. But and and then the end, the auction, the high bid was put in by the cat side. That's right. Cats, the cat side actually won the auction. They had uh, they they were the ones who who won it. And then another bizarre turn, Mr. Cats unfortunately passed away about ten days or so after the auction and before the closing in a uh, in a plane crash in Massachusetts. Well, that's that. That is quite a story, and and um, I, I think it was decided. Tell me if I'm wrong. Against a backdrop of not all that much precedent in, at least in the in the Delaware courts, as to how this type of a of a sale should should happen. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, and and it would be good to hear you know Kurt's view on this as well. Uh, and I know you guys might you know talk about it a little bit uh, in terms of the Transperfect case, but the. There isn't a whole lot of precedent here. In fact, I, you know, at least at that time, there wasn't any addressing what would a Delaware court do, or or how a Delaware court would authorize an operating entity to be sold. I think that we generally viewed it as the sort of default position where a court, a Delaware court, would feel more comfortable is, well, you do a public sale, you go out, you market it, you go, you know, you do things. Like you would ordinarily do if you're marketing a company worth seventy to a hundred million dollars, and make sure that you've found all the likely bidders, and then you go ahead and enter a process and allow people to do due diligence and all those sorts of things. We, you know, from the Norcross side, we we knew that that was not what we wanted, and so we were going to have to sort of get the court off of its comfort position, and so that's why I mentioned the fact that the. You know, the, the company was struggling to maintain quality people and it was it was losing people and couldn't hire new people. And we actually put in the evidence in the case to show that if you went through the public process to allow people to have enough investigation of the company to get them get them interested and to bid a high price would take too long. And by then the company wouldn't be worth as much. I mean, I, I think, Peter, you know, you guys did it the right way in terms of involving experts, because I think that given the court's experience with, you know, bidding, particularly in the M&A context, that they're always going to view, you know, N plus one is, is generally being uh, preferable to N. You know, I've also served as you know, a, a trustee or receiver uh, of myself of uh, corporations and LLCs, 
and have had to uh, figure out how to sell the companies or their assets. I, I think you could probably find in certain industries experts who would testify that that the act of allowing due diligence could itself be so harmful to the company if you if you allow a bunch of bidders to come in and take due diligence and notwithstanding you know NDAs or something to that effect that it ought to be a, a really limited universe of bidders precisely in order to preserve the value of the company and right. you may see that in some of the tech you know uh, cases and I'd be interested to see I, I've had that argument made to me you know, by by people and, and usually they, they've actually agreed on this ironically but I'd be interested to see how that kind of uh, argument carries the day with the Court of Chancery at some point. All right, TransPerfect, a very different kind of case involving a much bigger and more lucrative company with, uh, I think, annual revenues over half a billion dollars, or was that the profit? (laughs) You'll have to correct me. It was annual revenues more than, yes, more than half a billion. Yes, owned by two individuals who had known each other from, I think, their college days, and they had a falling out, and eventually this landed in courts in New York, in Delaware, and perhaps elsewhere as well, but ultimately, the in before Chancellor Bouchard, I believe, a huge cast of very prominent lawyers, including the two gentlemen I'm speaking to now, and I assume a bevy of experts as well, and the judge, uh, the judge, the, 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 the chancellor, I have to stop using my New York lingo, the, ch- the chancellor issued a very lengthy written decision, I believe it was last summer, and it was, it wasn't brought as a, as, correct me if I'm wrong, it wasn't brought as a dissolution case, it was brought under uh, Section 226, is that right? Yes. And that empowers the Chancery Court to order a, to appoint a custodian for the purpose of selling a company where certain statutory criteria are met. And the criteria have to be that they are unable to elect a board of directors and there is some type of impending or imminent irreparable type injury going on. Have I, have I summed that up correctly? Yeah, I mean, there's two ways you can do it. You can have the board, you, well, you can have stockholder deadlock, or you can have board deadlock. Mm. And the board deadlock comes with the, and the stockholders can't break the board deadlock. Right. Uh, and one of them, I think, Kurt, can't remember which one, requires there to be imminent harm. And then if you meet the either one of those, then the court can appoint a custodian with all the powers of a receiver under 291 of the DGCL, except that the custodian is supposed to run the company unless the court says otherwise. Right. So it, it's not a dissolution statute, but the powers that the statute grants the court sound very much like what a court could do in a dissolution matter, yes? Uh, yeah. Certainly. The court decides the case after trial, decides that the appoints the custodian, or I'm not sure the timing of the appointment, but the custodian is charged with the duty to come up with a plan for the sale of the company, correct? Yeah, and the, and the court's uh, yes. uh, decision just came out last week on uh, that plan. The decision itself, and perhaps now the plan has generated... A lot of uh, chatter and controversy. What was the what was the outcome in the decision last week? Well, the court determined that that it will be sold, which I guess it had already determined, and uh, that it would be sold as the uh, trustee recommended. Which was, I think, that there will be a public aspect to it. Maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. And but the court declined to permit the trustee or receiver to impose uh, non-competes on the owners in connection with the sale. He called it in his decision a modified broad auction led by existing stockholders. It's very short. I'll read it. A modified auction where each stockholder could solicit third-party investors as partners in an acquisition of TransPerfect 
and where the custodian could work with outside bidders who are interested in purchasing TransPerfect but not necessarily interested in partnering with an existing stockholder in connection with any acquisition. So, so you have the ability of the existing stockholders to participate in the auction as well as any outside interests. For people who are not familiar with the case, this is a huge company with an international presence, thousands of employees, gross revenues above half a billion dollars, an immensely profitable company, and it's being auctioned as a result of a deadlock, effectively as a result of a deadlock between the two owners. An amazing story. Is, is it that amazing? I mean, I mean it, it, uh, you know, look, and I, I was involved in this case, although it was very early on and very small, and at this point, uh, I only know what I read in the papers just like you do. I, I think uh, Peter Laddick had a, a more substantial involvement in it than I did. And, you know, and I'm not, you know, without talking about the merits of the case, really, there's been a lot of chatter on this, including from Rudy Giuliani, which, you know, I can understand where he's coming from. He's from New York. You have a a profitable business that employs a lot of people and pays a lot of taxes in New York and people don't want to see it, you know, sold or maybe busted up. And I can understand the parochial interest from that standpoint, but you know, let's not forget who actually owns the company. You know, it's not the employees or the vendors or whoever's going to be affected. It's the owners. And, and I find, you know, a lot of the arguments to be, you know, really close to what I'd call, you know, the, the constituency type statutes that say a court should consider uh, employees and vendors and, and the community and, and all that in, in, in making certain corporate decisions or decisions about corporations. And Delaware has generally rejected that idea, and it recognizes that the people who own the corporations are, in fact, the owners. So what's what's the solution? You have these people who own it and hate each other. At least one of them wants out. Maybe they both want out in some way, shape, or form. They can't make decisions at all with each other what you have you know people say well it's profitable it's still running so what that means is that the managers essentially have no bosses anymore that who's ever running the company on a day-to-day basis no longer has a functioning board to report to no the owners no longer have uh, anybody they can hold accountable uh, in, in the situation are you going to appoint a trustee or receiver forever and make the court supervise it forever? I I don't think so. So I, I don't think it's really that shocking a result. I think the only thing that people find surprising is that it, you know, it's an extremely profitable company. And so people are surprised to hear about dissolution because sometimes you get dissolution when a company's you know, insolvent. But, you know, deadlock is deadlock. I, I, I don't think it's that shocking a result. Well, on that note, let me thank the both of you for taking the time to talk with me. It's been a real pleasure talking with some business divorce pros from uh, the, the great state of Delaware. Before we close, though, I, I also want to thank the both of you for all you're doing to raise the profile of business divorce as a distinct subset of business litigation. Kurt, why don't uh, you talk for sure. a moment about Sure, I'll, 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 I'll give a shameless plug. Uh, Peter mentioned uh, his uh, article. We also have in the ABA business law section, business and corporate, uh, corporate litigation committee, a, a new, within the past year or two, uh, subcommittee called uh, the business divorce subcommittee. And Peter Laddick is a very active member of that as well. And uh, you appeared on one of our panels, Peter, uh, in, in Montreal. Separate and apart from the ABA, there we have a business divorce and private company disputes LinkedIn group. I know you post your blog on it, Peter. I know that Peter Laddick has also posted things on it in the past. And there are a lot of people from around the country uh, who are doing that been a, also a very active and successful LinkedIn group. Lastly, 
We are working on a treatise that we hope will be released this year. It's uh, very far in progress, and uh, uh, Peter Laddick wrote most of the chapter on uh, dissolution that's uh, going to appear uh, in the treatise, and I forget the exact name of the treatise, but it has business divorce in it somewhere. <laughs> uh, Peter, uh, Kurt has already stolen your thunder, but I've, I've, we've mentioned the article you did on subject matter jurisdiction over dissolution. I recently saw a wonderful, I think it was a blog post on what's a business divorce or something that sounded much yeah, like that. It, Where was that yeah. published? That's uh, that's on my firm's blog. It's DelawareBusinessLitigation.com, where you can just go to MorrisJames.com and and then click on the blogs button and, and wind your way over yeah, there. But that is, I thought yeah. that was just a great overview of what business divorce is all about. You also, I, I have to, you're a fellow podcaster, are you not? Uh, I am. Yes, we also here do uh, Corpcast, which. Um, doesn't focus exclusively on business divorce, uh, but we talk generally about what's going on in the court of chancery. Uh, sometimes we talk about big trends. Sometimes we talk about specific cases. We have also had interviews with uh, various members of our Delaware courts. We have an interview with uh, Vice Chancellor Laster that we did. Also with, uh, with uh, Judge Mary Johnston, uh, who is one of the judges on our uh, complex commercial litigation division uh, in our superior court. And also we got Vice Chancellor Slights before he actually got sworn in, I believe, because he was a partner here and we made him sit down for an interview before he ascended to the bench on the Court of Chancery. All right, gentlemen, once more, thank you so much for taking the time to share your experiences and knowledge on business divorce. Thanks, right, Peter. Thanks. That was Kurt Heyman and Pete Laddick discussing business divorce Delaware style. I hope you found it informative, and if you liked it, tell your friends and colleagues to give it a listen. If you really liked it, please consider giving it a positive review on iTunes, which will be very much appreciated, and subscribe to the podcast while you're at it. Until next time, this is Peter Mahler thanking you for listening to the Business Divorce Roundtable. And don't forget to check out my New York Business Divorce blog, where I post a new article every Monday morning.